Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Iri, Nini, and Chen. Greetings to you. Welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 173, A Forgotten Campaign. Today, we follow the Egyptians into shadowy lands, an artifact identified in the 1970s, but lost for decades, and then rediscovered tells of King Horemheb's efforts to extend the empire. This artifact has a complicated history, but it hints at fascinating events. Let's explore. Today's episode comes to you on behalf of Amir, Joseph, and Lois. These fine folks joined the podcast as overseers on Patreon.com. Thank you kindly. Your support allows the pharaoh to build great ships and sail the Mediterranean, to visit distant lands, both friendly and hostile, and to return with gifts for the greatest of gods. Amir, Joseph, Lois, thank you kindly. Your support is most generous, and I am in your debt. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me. Come, let us make our way north, following Pharaoh's armies. The year was 1316 BCE, give or take. Egypt lived under the power of Djoser Keperu Ra, sacred other forms of Ra, the Setep M Ra, chosen by Ra, Hor M Heb Mi Amun, Horus in festival, the beloved Amun, the pharaoh of Egypt. It was now the 16th year of Horemheb's reign. For some, that might sound surprising. Didn't Horemheb die in like year 13 or 14? Yes, some historians do argue that. But there are valid reasons for thinking that Horemheb ruled longer. One reason for suspecting this is a bowl, a stone vessel decorated with hieroglyphs. It may not sound like much, but depending on your point of view, this bowl may be incredibly valuable or utterly worthless. Which is it? Let's investigate. The bowl is grey stone, granodiorite to be specific. It is about 34 centimetres in diameter, and around the rim or lip it bears an inscription. Hieroglyphs encircle the bowl, presenting two texts side by side. The first text is a dedication, an offering from the owner to the gods. More on that later. The second text is intriguing. It describes, in brief but precise terms, an ancient war. The bowl says, quote, Year 16, under the person of the Lord of the Two Lands, Hor-em-Heb, the ruler, on the return from his first victorious campaign, from Byblos to the country of the vile chief of Karkemish. End quote. The bowl is a curious record. It came to light in the early 1970s. 
The item was in a private collection, and the anonymous owner took it to an antiquities dealer. Not to sell, rather, they wanted someone to identify the bowl, to determine its origins, and hopefully its significance. I won't get too deep into this tale, but long story short, in 1972, that anonymous owner sent the bowl to an antiquities dealer in Cairo. The dealer brought it to Professor Donald Redford, a Canadian Egyptologist. Redford examined the bowl, copied the inscription, and published his findings in 1973. Redford determined that this stone bowl was probably a genuine record of Hur-em-Heb. And putting the bowl together with other historical evidence, Redford suggested that Hormheb had led a campaign into the north in regnal year 16. Normally, that might be the end of the story. But this bowl and its origins were hazy. Redford studied the bowl on behalf of its owner, and he took photographs and made line drawings for publication. But following Redford's publication, scholars raised doubts about the bowl's authenticity. Reviewing the information from Redford's description, some historians argued that, actually, this bowl was a fake, a modern forgery, not to be trusted. The issue was controversial. Multiple scholars declared the bowl was fake, and over time, even Professor Redford quietly withdrew his analysis. He did not reject it or accept the forgery argument, but he never pushed the study or its conclusions any further. The problem seemed impossible to resolve. Why? Well, the bowl disappeared. After Redford studied it, he returned it to its owner, and the bowl went into a private collection. Again, that owner was anonymous, so nobody knew where the bowl was, nobody knew who had it, and therefore nobody could re-examine the item. This situation would last for decades. For 40 years, the bowl remained in its private collection. Until, at last, a new chapter. The bowl reappeared when its owner, an Egyptologist named Michael Rice, died. The bowl was in Rice's personal collection. And when his colleagues examined that collection, they found the stone bowl. Suddenly, the artifact was back in the spotlight. Scholars could examine the object, photograph it, and determine its authenticity. Was it a fake? Well, in 2018, a French historian named Nicolas Grimal published his findings. He accessed the bowl, the physical object. Grimal took new photos, made a new copy, and he re-examined all the scholarship that had swirled around this item. Grimal's analysis was thorough and deliciously sharp. He noted how, following Redford's publication, Multiple scholars had declared the item an obvious forgery, quote unquote. And yet, none of those scholars had seen the bowl in person for themselves. One scholar had claimed to see it, but reviewing the circumstances, Grimal found that was most likely impossible. Either they were wrong about the item or misled about what they were seeing. In other words, for 40 plus years, some historians had declared this bowl a forgery based on surprisingly thin evidence. Grimal re-examined the artifact, studying it from every angle. He looked at the design, the manufacture, the hieroglyphs, and the contents of those glyphs, 
the results were interesting. Overall, the bowl does seem to fit with a genuine late 18th dynasty object. The design of the bowl is a common shape for that period, and the name of its owner, Sen Nefer, is a very common one. Even the carving of the hieroglyphs, the ways that they were arranged, matched with other examples from the late 18th dynasty. Basically, the bowl fit within the supposed context quite nicely. So, if this was a fake, the person who made it must be exceptionally skilled and knowledgeable about those specific items. Ultimately, Grimal concluded that, based on the Egyptological information, the bowl did appear to be genuine. He acknowledged that another test was necessary, specifically a microscopic analysis of the cutting used on the hieroglyphs. If the bowl was fake, then a detailed study of the hieroglyphs should reveal whether somebody had used modern tools to cut it. In 2022, I'm not aware of somebody doing that microscopic study, yet, but for now, the available evidence seems to point to, yes, this bowl may be the real deal. So a stone bowl bearing a ring of hieroglyphs seems to record deeds under King Hor-em-Heb. The item is known, having finally reappeared after a long absence. From its contents, the object seems to be genuine. If that is accurate, then it gives us new information on the reign of Hor-em-Heb, the achievements of this king and his followers. Once again, the main text on the bowl goes as follows. Quote, Year 16, under the person of the Lord of the Two Lands, Hor-em-Heb, the ruler, on the return from his first victorious campaign from Byblos to the country of the vile chief of Karkemish. End quote. According to this bowl, Hor-em-Heb went forth on a military expedition. In the 16th year of his reign, Pharaoh gathered his forces. He travelled to Byblos, a coastal city in modern-day Lebanon, From there, the king of Egypt and his army marched north. Eventually, they reached the land of Karkemish. Karkemish was a town in modern-day Syria. It occupied a spot on the west bank of the Euphrates, one of the two great rivers in that land. And throughout the Late Bronze Age, Karkemish and its people ruled a sizable kingdom. They were not top-tier, like the great empires of Egypt, Mitanni, or the Hittites. But Karkemish and its territory were a significant part of Syrian politics and society. And in year 16 of his reign, the Egyptian pharaoh Horemheb came to the city. Horemheb's expedition to Karkemish came at an interesting time. In recent decades, the kingdoms of Syria had been under pressure. The great king of Hatti, Supaluliuma, had expanded his power deep into this region and to northern Iraq. Supaluliuma and his Hittite armies had swept aside many opposing forces. And at the height of their victories, they had laid siege to Karkemish. Supaluliuma himself had attacked Karkemish on the Euphrates River. He occupied the city and appointed his own son as the local governor or ruler. So Karkemish had fallen under Hittite authority, and it became a southern bastion of their great empire. Supaluliuma's victory had taken place probably during the reign of Ai, 
or maybe the early years of Horemheb. The chronology of these events is terribly uncertain. The evidence is fragmentary, and historians argue bitterly over the details. I won't get into these synchronisms here and how everything lines up, but long story short, the Hittites had gained power over Karkemish around 1330 BCE, give or take. Now, 15 plus years later, the Egyptians struck back. The stone bowl referencing Horemheb's campaign gives a taste of what may have happened. The king of Egypt and his forces travelled to Byblos on the Lebanese coast. Then, they advanced north and east, heading for the Euphrates. The Egyptians entered the land of Karkemish and its vile chieftain, quote-unquote. That phrase, vile chieftain, or wer chesi, is a common one in Egyptian royal texts. Basically, any ruler who opposed the Egyptian pharaoh became wretched or vile. The modern equivalent might be something like rebel scum. Egyptian propaganda treated these rivals as the lowest, wretched sort of group. You rebel scum. Anyway, the bowl mentions Hormeb marching to the land of Karkemish, and it describes the campaign as, quote, the first campaign of victory, quote. That is the Wedjit F Tepit Net Neket. This seems to be Horemheb's first campaign as the king of Egypt. In the Egyptian way of doing things, a ruler's campaigns only start counting once they become the pharaoh. Horemheb may have led other expeditions back in his pre-royal career, but since taking the throne, this was his first expedition, or at least his first expedition to the north. I'll come back to that a little bit later, but it's an interesting feature. Apparently, Horemheb did not come north until year 16 of his reign. The bowl describes the campaign as going from Byblos to the country of Karkemish, but it does not say that Horemheb captured it. In the context, I think we can assume the Egyptians attacked the region, but did not actually take the city. Horemheb may have come to Karkemish to compel tribute and a statement of friendship, but we have no reference to any attack on the city itself. Working from this bowl, it seems that Horemheb marched as far as Karkemish, but did not actually capture the city. The king led a show of force, rather than a conquest. Still, it was a far-reaching expedition. Besides the inscription recording Horemheb's campaign, the stone bowl also includes a text from its owner. The bowl's owner was a man named Sen Nefer. He was a mid-ranking official, an employee in the royal administration. And apparently, he followed Horemheb to Karkemish. Sen Nefer commissioned this bowl as an offering, something he could use when praising the great gods. And the hieroglyphs on the bowl record Sen Nefer's piety. The bowl says, quote, An offering given by the king for Petar, who is south of his wall, the master of Anktawi. An offering to Astarte, ruling lady of the sky. An offering to Anat, the daughter of Petar, who is master of Ma'at. An offering to Reshef, lord of the sky. An offering to Kadesh, the lady of the stars of the sky. They, these gods, give life, prosperity, and health 
to the master of the royal stables, Sen Nefer, whose life is renewed by them. End quote. Sen Nefer was an overseer of the stables, so he was in charge of horses belonging to the king of Egypt. As you can imagine, a man like that would be a prime candidate to join a royal military expedition. Going far north, Horemheb's army would require horses for scouting and messengers, and of course, for chariots. Sen Nefer, a stable master, would be a likely person to join this expedition. And assuming the bowl is genuine, Sen Nefer apparently made an offering when the campaign was ended. Sen Nefer commissioned this bowl to various gods and goddesses. The primary god was Ptah, the lord of Men Nefer, or Memphis. That makes sense. Men Nefer, or Memphis, was one of the major centres of royal administration, and the kings seem to have maintained stables and chariots in this area. So Sen Nefer probably lived in the northern city, the city of Ptah, and when he commissioned this bowl, he did so for the greatest god of the region. Curiously, Sen Nefer included other deities in his offering, and many of the ones he references are technically foreigners. Besides Ptah, lord of Memphis, Sen Nefer also invoked a variety of Canaanite deities. These included Astarte, a goddess who had power over war, sexuality, and fertility. There was also Reshef, or Reshep, a god of war, violence, and plague. There was Anat, another goddess, whom Sen Nefer describes as the daughter of Ptah. Finally, there was Kadesh, or Kedesh, a curious goddess who might be an invention by the Egyptians based on their dealings with Canaan. The goddess Kadesh, not to be confused with the city of Kadesh, is a strange case. I will tell her story another day. Long story short, the deities whom Sen Nefer praised are often gods associated with danger. Astarte was a goddess of war, Reshep was a god of war and plague. So Sen Nefer was dedicating to gods who might protect or threaten his well-being. It seems that having returned from a dangerous campaign, Sen Nefer commissioned this object as a thank you. In his eyes, gods like Astarte and Reshef had protected him on his long journey, and allowed him to return safe, sound, and untroubled. Thus, Sen Nefer may have seen these deities as, quote, renewing his life. It was a nice dedication from a man who had undertaken a long and dangerous trip. In regnal year 16, King Hormheb went north. The pharaoh departed Egypt, leading an army of his followers. On this journey, Hormheb travelled to Beblos, and from there, he went down to the land of Karkemish. Horemheb attacked Karkemish, or at least the territory around it. He probably did not capture the city, but he may have plundered the region, or even compelled tribute. Upon his return, the king proclaimed a victorious campaign, and one of his followers, Sen Nefer the stable master, commissioned a bowl recording that journey. Today, this record remains slightly controversial. But thanks to the rediscovery of the bowl, it now seems increasingly likely that the item, and the tale it records, is genuine. That might change with future research, and if it does, 
I will update this episode. But for now, we can say with reasonable confidence, in year 16, Horemheb went north. This bowl is not the only trace of Horemheb in the distant lands of Syria and Canaan. In recent years, archaeologists have found numerous artifacts of the pharaoh in that region. And at home in Egypt, Horemheb left other images that might record these events. We will explore these traces and their context after the break. See you in a moment. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. In the 16th year of his reign, around 1316 BCE, Horemheb led a campaign to the north. Maybe. The record for that is debatable, but we do have other information that adds to our picture. At Karnak Temple, Horemheb commissioned large pylon gateways and enormous courts. He added a great deal to Karnak, especially the southern precinct. In that area, scattered blocks show images of foreigners coming to Egypt. Some of them come willingly, quote-unquote, bringing tribute for the pharaoh and the gods. But other images show foreigners coming unwillingly. I have discussed some of these images previously, in episode 164b, but there is more to say. In one scene, Horemheb appears at massive scale. In one hand, he holds a bundle of ropes, and those ropes lead to the necks of prisoners. Stumbling behind the pharaoh, their arms bound, leaders of northern communities come before the gods. Above these prisoners, hieroglyphs record their identities. We find the following, quote, The wretched leaders of the Rechenu, aka the peoples of Syria. They praise the king, saying, Hail to you, Horemheb! How great is the terror of you in their hearts. End quote. Another text from the same area shows the plunder that Horemheb took. The king presents gold, drinking vessels, and ornamental vases, all in a foreign design. Horemheb describes these objects as, quote, the plunder brought by his person, the king, to his father Amun, consisting of that which he took from the land of Syria, end quote. So Horemheb claimed to take prisoners and wealth from these distant lands. Finally, one wall of this court showed Horemheb smiting his enemies. The king appeared before Amun-Ra. He raised a mace to slaughter foes. Meanwhile, Amun held a sword before Horemheb. That sword, the Kopesh, is an emblem of victory, 
and it will become a common motif in New Kingdom warfare. As the pharaoh serves the god, the god rewards him with conquest. Horemheb's court at Karnak presented that imagery. Beneath the king, hieroglyphs recorded his conquests, the lists of names from different regions and peoples that submitted to his rule. Among others, these list of conquests mention Rechenu, the Syrians, Taxi, a land somewhere near Damascus, Tunib, a major town, halfway between Taxi and Aleppo, Ugarit, one of the most important harbour towns in the eastern Mediterranean, and finally, Horamheb mentions victory over the Hittites, or Hatti. He mentions the Hittites just generally, no specific location. But putting it together, we do have a broad picture. On the walls of Karnak Temple, Horemheb laid out an itinerary for his northern victories. Of course, we take these images and records with a grain of salt. Horemheb had every reason to present himself as victorious, driving all before him. The whole concept of pharaonic warfare and power depended on the imagery of eternal victory. So we do not treat these records as a literal description of his campaigns. But it is possible that Horemheb did visit those areas and take tribute, or even prisoners, from the northern lands. So Horemheb claimed to plunder and ruin cities in Canaan and Syria. But these images from Karnak are ultimately just art, propaganda, presenting the king's agenda and his ideology of power. If Horemheb or his servants were genuinely active in the northern lands, wouldn't we find traces of them in that region? Well, yes, sort of. Horemheb's records speak of a northern war. These references, like the Year 16 Bowl and the Karnak images, may line up with artefacts discovered in the region. Archaeologists working in Syria have found items dating to the reign of Horemheb. These come from great cities in the region. Most notably, items of Horemheb's regime turn up in the ruins of Katna and Ugarit. Katna and Ugarit were prominent towns in northern Canaan and Syria. Katna was inland, while Ugarit was coastal. Together, they formed major centres of regional politics. And archaeological work in these towns have uncovered many traces of life, activity, and history of Bronze Age Syria. For Horemheb, we get some interesting clues. At Katna, archaeologists recovered small seals, lumps of clay attached to objects and inscribed with the name of Horemheb. Clay seals are incredibly useful for historians. They tend to appear in contexts where administrators, like scribes, were keeping track of items and deliveries, so the appearance of seals with Horemheb's name might hint at activity in the region of Katna. The activity itself is unknown. Perhaps Horemheb passed the city during his northern campaign, or maybe these items came to Katna as part of trade or official gifts. You can speculate either way, but Horemheb's regime was active at Katna. Meanwhile, Archaeologists working at Ugarit uncovered large alabaster vases, two of them bearing the cartouches of Horemheb. The vases are impressive, and probably quite expensive. 
They are not your run-of-the-mill storage vessel. These are prestigious objects, difficult to manufacture, difficult to transport. How they got to Ugarit is unknown. The items are impressive, and their high-quality stone would make them expensive. So perhaps they came as trade goods, or even diplomatic gifts. We can only guess, but it's entirely possible that on his northern campaign, Hormheb brought vases like these as offerings for local rulers. If the lords of Ugarit, say, were friendly to the pharaoh, Horemheb might reward them with expensive items from Egypt. Again, that is speculative. But the high-quality vases and the cartouches of Horemheb upon them might reflect the king's diplomatic activities. Notably, these vases turned up at the city of Ugarit, a city that is also referenced in Horemheb's Karnak records. Among his lists of victories, the name of Ugarit appears on Horemheb's artistic scenes. Again, we don't take these images literally all the time, but at the very least, the connection between the city of Ugarit and the images at Karnak maybe give more weight to the idea that Horemheb came to this region in person. The records of Horemheb's reign are fragmentary, and we could interpret them in different ways. The images from Karnak and the small items from Katna and Ugarit do not prove that Horemheb led a campaign. Instead, they are circumstantial evidence. If Horemheb did come north, these records would fit within the general picture. But they could be entirely unrelated, leftover elements from trade, diplomacy, or just pharaonic propaganda. Hypothetically, let's put these bits and pieces together into a basic picture. If all of these records, the stone bowl, the Karnak images, and the northern artifacts, are telling the same story, could we reconstruct Horemheb's campaign? Maybe. Let's give it a shot. The stone bowl mentions two cities, Eblos and Karkemish. Let's use those as the starting point and ending points of this hypothetical war. Horemheb and his troops sail from northern Egypt to the city of Byblos. They have foot soldiers, archers, chariots, and horses. Horses managed by people like Senefer. The Egyptian army comes to Byblos, a port city, friendly to Egypt. They disembark in the region and set up their base. Byblos will be their starting point for the campaign to come. Soon, Horemheb and his followers leave Byblos, heading east and north. They start moving into the region called Taxi. Presumably, they make for the Orontes River, the great waterway that comes south into the land of Taxi. The king and his army march north, past major cities like Kadesh. Eventually, they approach Katna. There, Horemheb or his representatives treat with the local rulers. They bring gifts or items of exchange. Those items might have clay seals on them, pressed with the name of Horemheb. So Horemheb and his forces enter that land. Maybe things are friendly, or maybe it's an aggressive negotiations, negotiations with a kopesh. Either way, the king and his officials come to this community and establish relationships. Soon, Horemheb moves north once again, out of Taxi, towards Karkemish. 
The king's forces enter lands belonging to Carchemish on the western bank of the Euphrates. There, the Egyptians do something. We're not sure. Maybe they attack Carchemish itself and are repulsed. Or maybe they avoid a direct assault and focus on plundering the region. Or maybe the Egyptians come to Carchemish as a show of force. Perhaps they set up camp to negotiate with the local ruler, the vile ruler of Carchemish. Maybe there is fighting in this region. We do not know for sure. What we can infer is that Horemheb does not capture Carchemish itself. The king is either unwilling or unable to overcome the city's defences, and he must satisfy himself with a bit of plunder or negotiation, followed by a strategic withdrawal. The Egyptian army, having entered Carchemish's lands, now turns around and leaves. At this point, the Egyptians have two options. Maybe they go south, back the way they came, past Katna, Kadesh, and Taxi. Or maybe they go west towards Ugarit. If they do, perhaps Hormheb brings objects like alabaster vases as gifts for the rulers of Ugarit. Either way, after leaving Karkemish, the army returns to Byblos. There, they board their ships and head back to Egypt. The northern campaign is indecisive in its ultimate goal. Hormheb seems to have gone as far north as Karkemish, but he did not seem to capture it. And yet, when he returned to Karnak, Hormheb made a show of presenting captives from Canaan and Syria to the gods. This imagery may be genuine. If there was fighting in that land, the Egyptians may have taken prisoners from different communities. Then again, the imagery may be hollow, a facade over an uncertain or indecisive result. Again, we can only speculate. This itinerary is hypothetical, but I think it's a reasonable possibility based on the information we have. What we can say is that in 2022, we have an increasingly solid foundation for the idea that Hormheb led a northern campaign. Artifacts, once dismissed as forgeries, may in fact be genuine, and artifacts from northern communities hint at diplomatic or even military activity during Horemheb's reign. Of course, there are many gaps within this picture, and many questions unanswered. Still, maybe we are getting a little bit more certainty. <laughs>